Will you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the first book of the Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at the first chapter. There's 10 verses in this chapter, and we're going to uh, be looking at the three of them as I speak. Uh, we'll eventually go through all this chapter together. Okay. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And we became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. From you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had into you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. You can just see this. Timothy has just raced in the house and told Paul, and Silas was there, and they realized what Timothy had to say about the church in Thessalonia. And with almost not being able to breathe, they all three sat down and wrote a letter to this church. The book of 1 Thessalonians was the second book in the New Testament that was ever written. So long before there were any Gospels, long before anything uh, that told about the times to come or uh, any of the letters of, of Paul to the other churches, this was the first one. James, uh, the, the uh, Apostle James, wrote a letter, uh, his book, probably about five or six years before that, and that would have been the only New Testament book written. And then this letter, written to this little church, was the second. So I want to tell you why. Like, what was going on that this would be such an amazing letter, and I'd say one of the most thrilling letters in the New Testament. Comforting as it can be. Believers, when they're troubled, go here. There is a sweetness to this letter. There is an encouragement to this letter. This letter allows people to know what God has for them, and it's all rooted in the resurrection. And so that's why I wanted to speak about it today. And I will go on in this, in this because there's no way that I can cover the ten verses today. I'm just going to look at the first three. But I want to tell you the backstory. So we need to go back to Paul, who then goes out and plants churches among the Gentile nations. So he always goes to the synagogues first because that is who God possibly prepared through his word because this is the Old Testament was the only Bible known at the time. And so 
So he always went to the, to the synagogue first if he could. And then if not, he simply went to the market. He just went to, the, he went to Walmart, and that's what he did. So let's start in Acts chapter 16. And we're just going to briefly bump through 16, 17, and a part of 18 to see what's going on during this time in Paul's life. So we have three men traveling together. You have Paul, and it says here Silvanus, which is the Latin for Silas. So Paul and Silas, if you've heard of Paul and Silas. And then Timothy. We're going to see that in this is the second missionary journey of Paul. So he's already gone out before. He's gone through most of Turkey Uh, And he comes back to Antioch, where his home church is. He reports what God has done, the miracles that he had, the salvations that he'd done. They pray for them. They rejoice together. And then after a short time, so this is roughly about the year 49, he's dying to know what's happening to the churches, the churches that he planted, and then he wants to go further. He wants to visit the ones he's planted and keep going. And it's always his desire to go one more town one more county over, and that's what we're going to see here. So in the second missionary journey, he picks up a disciple named Timothy, and Timothy was a young man, probably a teenager, who got saved in the first time that Paul went to, the, to his town in, in Lystra, and he was saved, and he accompanies uh, Paul and Silas on this trip, okay? So you have to have a little bit of a map and I'm so sorry that I don't know enough about this slideshow to put a map on it because it's probably very easy to do. But a map of what you would now know as Turkey is really where you are in the second missionary journey, Turkey and Greece. So if you know where the Mediterranean is, where Italy is sticking down like a boot, and you keep following the water over to the east, you're going to get on the other side of Greece, and that's called the Aegean Sea. And Greece is on the one side, and the GNC is in the middle, and then on the right is Turkey. And Turkey then goes down the, down the hill, down the slope, and then you have Antioch, where Paul was from. And then further down, you get into Jerusalem and, and, uh, and Israel. So he is heading northeast, and he's heading into complete Gentile territory. And every one of these counties were provinces, provinces of Rome. So it was almost like a state, if you think of it like West Virginia and Pennsylvania, next to each other with a different name, a different local government, but essentially run by the Caesar. The Caesar ran all of this. Okay, So when you see these names, this is the part where you just get confused because you don't know where they are anyway. These are states in what now is Turkey. All right, This is 16, or 16 verse 6 in Acts. When they had gone through Phrygia in the region of Galatia and were forbidden by the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, and they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the the Spirit suffered them not, and they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. This is the part of my Bible reading that I get very sleepy and I'd probably just nod off, because unless you truly know in your mind what that is and you can track that on a map, Word, word, word doesn't mean anything to you, okay? So you have to know that he's heading through Turkey. So Galatia is in the middle of the country. Uh, Turkey is shaped like a big football. And in the middle, in that middle mountainous part, is Galatia. And they've gone through Galatian, and you know that there's letters to the Galatians. So he planted a church in, in Galatia, and he goes and he visits them, and it's very rewarding there, and he preaches there, and... There's people saved there, and the church is built up. And he goes through, 
And as he then goes further west, the next state to the west is called Asia. Now, we think of Asia as the whole continent that has China and Vietnam in it. Uh, But in the Roman mind, it was just the west coast of Turkey was Asia. And before they step over the county line, the Holy Spirit says, Paul, no. Which is surprising. What do you mean, no? I'm preaching the gospel. No, not now, not here. And so Paul says, fine. Now, remember, everything you do is prayerful. You don't just go and say, I'm going to go to this city and I'm going to buy and sell and everything is going to go according to my plan. You, you, the closer you are with God, the more you would never dare do that. You recognize that God truly has your day set up and you beg for the appointments that he sets you up for. And so he stops in his tracks and he says, fine, I can't go west. I'll go north. Because he was already in Galatia, and Galatia goes all the way to the, to the coast, so he goes, I'll go to Bithynia. So he starts going Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit says, no. Now, that's interesting. It stop, God stops you in your tracks often. He does it. And you have to say, why, God, I don't understand you? Well, get used to it. That's just the way it works. Get used to that as fast as you can, and you'll be better off. And he says, stop. And so Paul just stops. He stops, okay? Now, he then simply goes to the coast in between Bithynia and Asia. He goes to the town on the, on the coast, and he just stops, all right? And that's Troas, all right? So during the night, he has a vision. This is in verse 9 of chapter 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man in Macedonia and prayed to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. All right? Do you see the map? Here's Turkey, here's the Aegean Sea, and here's Greece. Greece in the ancient world was called Achaia. And above Greece, northern Greece, was called Macedonia. Macedonia is where uh, Alexander the Great was from, that he conquered the world from Macedonia. And there were three main cities. You had Philippi, which was close to the coast. And then a little bit farther down the, down the bay, you had Thessalonica. And this is the church of the Thessalonians. And then a little bit farther, you had Berea. And those were the three main towns. So he, they cross over, and they go straight to Philippi. Okay? Philippi, there was no synagogue. So he couldn't go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. There wasn't enough Jewish men in that town to go to the synagogue. So he goes to the river because it was a custom all the way day from the day that they were all in Babylon, that by the river in Babylon, they felt closest to God because that river eventually went somewhere that would touch Israel. And that was the idea. So they went to the river and he met a, a lady named Lydia, who was a businesswoman. And she was touched by the gospel and Lord opened her eyes to the gospel and she was saved. And Paul baptized her there at the river and her whole family. And while, uh, and while they were there, Lydia said, why don't you come and stay at our house? We've got an extra room. We would love to have you. And they were on their way to Lydia's house to spend the night. And there was a slave girl in the street who got money for her owners by telling fortunes. She had a demon that allowed her to know the future. 
And she would say, hey, you're going to do this, or hey, this is going to happen, or your lucky number is seven. And they would get lots of money as a result. They would basically rent her out for parties. And she, would, she was calling out in, in the street in front of Paul, this is Paul who speaks for the one and true God. And Paul's heart was so gripped with sadness for this girl's condition that he cast the demon out of that girl. Get out of her. And immediately the demon just escapes. And when her owners found out that she couldn't make money for them anymore, they grabbed Paul and put him into the marketplace and stirred up the rabble, and there was a riot. So within this, and you have to say, Lydia is still standing there because they were on her way to her house. And there is a riot in the city, and people are in just crazy. And so they accuse him falsely. They have him beaten publicly, and they put him in the stocks inside the prison. And at midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing. Do you know this passage? They're singing and praying at midnight with their feet in the stocks. And an earthquake so violent comes and shakes the foundations of that prison that all of the gates fly open on their own. And the jailer, whose one job is to keep that door locked, suddenly recognizes he's about to be killed by the Roman army. And he calls out for Paul. And Paul said, do thyself no harm. We're still here. And the jailer, not knowing why they would still be there, it was not the fact that there was an earthquake. It was the fact that there was an earthquake, and Paul and Silas was in there waiting for him. And he comes in, and he falls down and said, how do I be saved? Now, God sets these things up, do you see? If he had gone into Asia, God sets these things up. It's God that saves people. It's God that works in people's hearts. We're simply people. We're just people, but we're people who've been changed and have something to say. That's the only thing that's different about us. We're not smarter. We're not more powerful. We just have something to say, and we say it in simple ways. And so God is setting that all up, and Paul is just watching it happen. So the, the jailer and his family is baptized in the middle of the night, and what happens is the next day, the the leaders of the city have to come in. They find out he's a Roman citizen, and they ask him really nice, please leave our town. Please leave our town. So Philippi was a one-dayer, a one-day ministry with a church there at the end, and he writes to the Philippians. Ever read Philippians? Whatever so things are, are beautiful and lovely and of good report, think on these things. The, 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 just the tenderness of that letter there is a group of believers, and Paul was there 15 minutes, and most of that 15 minutes was taken up by a riot, and he was hauled off to jail and beaten, and that was all it was. That was a day's work in Paul's life. So he escapes, and he runs to the next city over, which is Thessalonica, all right? So, so we see that <laughs> amazingly they, they follow him. This is verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went on into them, and for three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this is Jesus whom I preach unto you as Christ. And some of them believed, 
and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks of great multitude, and a chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set the whole city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring him out to the people. And when they found him not, they drew Jason and certain brothers into the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down have come here also, whom Jason hath received, and these do all contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Do you realize? Jason got saved on Tuesday afternoon, and by Wednesday morning, he was already in jail. They were brand new Christians. Paul had just got there. And what did he preach? He preached the resurrection. He preached the resurrection from the dead. And he preached that Christ had to suffer, had to die, and had to be risen. That it was required of of Jesus to be risen. And these people put their faith in that and already were suffering for it. They were already suffering for it. It's interesting that a large number of prominent people believed him. So many that the non-believing Jews were jealous. And you ended up with a second riot. We're talking about two riots in two days, in two towns. Everywhere he went, he was stoned or, or dragged through the streets. So he runs and he escapes to the third city. He goes to Berea, and this is 17 verse 11. There were, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. So they didn't just immediately say, oh, you're crazy. He would say something and they would say, just a minute. And they would open their Bible and say, let me see. And they would check it out with what they knew to be true. These were devout people who had the scriptures and loved God. And because of that, their minds were ready to receive. But what happened is the mob from Thessalonica found out that they were in Berea and they came again and chased him out of town. So Paul now escapes to Athens. So that is now in Achaia. So Macedonia has those three towns. South of Macedonia is Greece. And so he runs to Athens as the capital. And in that, at Athens, he sends Timothy back to the Thessalonians that he only spent the tiniest time with. You have a little tiny church that he was so in love with these people. But he was only there for just 15 minutes, maybe. And so he was like, Timothy, I'm sorry, I don't care. You've got to go back to the Thessalonians. I need to know what's happening with them. I, know, I need to know how they are. I need you to teach them. I need you to give, share the gospel with them. You cannot preach one sermon and people be changed. Okay? That's why I chose this, this passage. The truth is, yes, you can. The truth is that God saves people. The truth is that you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not cute enough, you're not powerful enough, you're not influenceable enough that you are going to do anything in anybody's life. When God raises someone from the dead, it's unmistakable. You know what a dead person looks like and you know what a live person looks like and you cannot confuse the two. Everybody knows. And Paul Love the Lord, growing in the Lord, sent Timothy quickly, quickly, go quickly, teach them. Okay? And so he goes. And by the way, Paul stays in Athens, and in verse 31, he's already preaching the resurrection again with some believing. 
Everywhere he went, he preached, Jesus rose from the dead. He did not go into the, the nuances of redemptive history. He preached Jesus raising from the dead. And in preaching Jesus raising from the dead, what I'm telling you today is that God raises people from the dead. That's what happens. You are raised from the dead as you simply take God at his word. There is nothing that God ever did greater value than to vindicate his son. His son said, I am God Almighty, and people mocked and killed him. And God vindicated what he said by raising him from the dead. That's what he did. So when a person takes that absolutely amazing statement and says, God is big enough, I love it. God now just says, life. And breath comes in and the bones come together. And they're able to walk and live and truly live. They live for the first time. He spent his whole time telling them about the resurrection. And it was the resurrection that we celebrate, not on Easter. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. We meet not on the Sabbath. We meet on the first day of the week because it is a weekly commemoration that Jesus breathed, that his heart started beating, and he did it himself. He said, I lay down my life, and I take it up again. Nobody does it to me. I am powerful enough to close my own eyes in death, and I'm powerful enough to inhale air on my own. And he did it. And when some simple person thinks That's what God said. I believe that that's what God said. And he grabs it with all of his faith. God breathes life into that person, and they were not not alive before, and now they are. There's something unmistakable. So what happens is that Paul now escapes Athens and runs to Corinth. That's at chapter 18, verse 1. He runs to Corinth, and Timothy meets him in Corinth. And this is what Timothy said. We're in 1 Thessalonians 3. Now, this is the same letter. There's five chapters in this letter. And he's talking about Timothy because he sent Timothy to them. This is verse 8. No, verse 6. Beg your pardon. This is verse 6. But now, when Timotheus came to you uh, unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all of our affliction and distress by your faith. Paul couldn't wait to write that letter because he couldn't believe what he had heard. Timothy went and went back to them, and these people were alive. They were, they were godly, and they were, they were totally untaught. They knew nothing, but they were following the Lord. There was life in their veins. They were walking alive. They were note zombies. This is not, we need to educate people. It's not an education issue. It is a person who is dead or a person who is alive. When you go to the graveyard and you say, come out, Because this is what God said, do you expect the graves to open or not? Well, there's not a big difference. When you share with your family, when you share with your neighbors, when you share with the people you've known since grade school, and they're as dead as a doornail, and you share the gospel, you share the gospel. 
It's a nuclear bomb. It's the most powerful thing in the universe. There's nothing like it because it has the Holy Spirit in it. And when the Holy Spirit is wearing a glove, it can knock anybody out. And it's not you. You're simply faithful or not faithful. God is the one that's doing it. And Paul was like dumbstruck. They're alive? How could, be, how could they be alive? We were just there one afternoon. How, how is it possible that there's a congregation, loving congregation meeting there? And Timmy said, Timothy's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, it's the truth. And all three of them couldn't wait to write this letter. Verse 8, this is in chapter 3. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. There's nothing that Paul wanted any more than to know that the dead people were now alive. Because that's what happened. For what, can we, what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith the joy for your sakes before God day and night, praying exceedingly that we might see your faith and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Do you see, they still needed taught. Of course you need taught. Of course you need taught. Of course. You cannot just for all of your life be by yourself. None of us belong to Charles Stanley's church. You can't, that, that you cannot be it by yourself. You must come so that we can love each other, so we can stir each other up, so we can be transparent and vulnerable for each other, so we can love each other, so we can share the gospel with each other. That's why we have to meet. So, yes, he needs taught, and yes, there's all kinds of things lacking in their faith that Paul needs to tell them. But what he was amazed is that he, with the, nothing more than sharing the gospel about the re- resurrection of Christ, there are people now that love the Lord. And that is not Paul's doing. That's God's doing. And that is why it is so amazing. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. And I want to go further in this than we can today. But just look at the first three verses and just see what Paul is doing as he's bursting at the seams, can't wait to write to these people. And it becomes the cornerstone foundational block of the New Testament canon. This is what this is the beginning of what is now the New Testament. Paul, Silvanus, Timotheus, and to the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, first of all, means called out people. That's what the word means. You live in a sewer. You're called out of that. You live in a filthy place. You're called out of that. You all have cell phones and Netflix, and you're called out of that. You all all are selfish, and you're called out of that. You're called out of the muck that you live in. You're called out. You're a church which is in God. That is what it is. You're in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is just in that sentence. You could sit there for months and go, oh, my goodness, that's inexhaustible. Right there could be expounded upon 20 sermons in a row. What does it mean to be in God, to be in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I tell you, in Jesus Christ is where you're saved. In Jesus Christ is where you're blessed. In Jesus Christ is where you're accepted. In Jesus Christ is where God loves you. Otherwise, it's just me, and I've already proven myself. In Jesus Christ is salvation. In God is what you were intended to be. That honors God. That is amazing. 
Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a blessing, but it's a blessing that's already happened. What he's saying is, he's not saying, oh, I wish that God would show you grace and peace. He's saying, you are a church called out, and you are in God and in Christ, and you've been given grace, and you've been given peace. What does that mean? I, had a, uh, I worked at a group home for mentally retarded people um, near Huntington, and I had a fellow there named Herschel McCorkle. Do you know McCorkle Avenue in Charleston? There was a governor McCorkle, and Sunrise Museum, which became a children's museum, was the mansion that Governor McCorkle, who was richer than rich, lived in. Well, Herschel McCorkle is now an 80-year-old man who's the sole heir of Governor McCorkle. This man, who just happy, he's the, one of the most joyful, happy guys in the world, doesn't know what money is. And he has multi, multi, multi millions of dollars. And I was making his bed one day, and I said, Herschel, I love to call him Herschel just because his name's so awesome. Herschel, do you know you could buy and sell me? And he said, oh, yep, yep, I could buy and sell you, yep. I said, no, Herschel, I mean it. Do you know you're a rich man? Rich, rich, yep, I'm rich. And I'm like, oh, that'll preach. Oh, that'll preach. That'll preach. Grace and and peace be to you. What does that mean? So, peace is what we need. Global warming is not our problem. I'm sorry to tell you if you think it is. It's not ignorance. It's not war. It's not, it's not uh, illiteracy, though all those things are true. We are at war with Almighty God. And not to have peace means that is the problem of all problems. Romans 8, 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Everything about us resists God naturally. That's just the way it is. We're at war with him, and he will win. To be at peace with God means God doesn't, is not offended by me. I, he has nothing against me. He only has what he wants for my blessing. He's turned away his wrath from me, and he's only given me his, his smile. That's being at peace with God. That, that's inexhaustible. That sentence is 100 miles deep. And grace, ah, this comes to mind. On Easter evening, the disciples were in a locked room afraid because they were afraid they were next. Their crosses were being erected on hills that they didn't know which one it was, but they knew it was up. And they were all in a locked room, and Jesus comes right through the wall. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth, Peace be with you. Do you see? To be at peace with God is everything. And grace, the gospel of grace, is also tied to the the resurrection. This is Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which had been afore promised by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What is grace? It's the gospel. The gospel is grace. That's what what grace is. That's what the gospel is. 
When you say God is gracious to me, he has given me all that I need. And he's given it all to me in Christ. That's grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. That's grace. That's the gospel. And it's rooted in the, in the resurrection. He was the son of David because he was born of David's line. He was the son of God proven because God raised him from the dead. That's how you know he was God. You know he was, you know he was from the son of David because his father's 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 father was David. That's how you know. But you know that he was the son of God. Why? Because, because why? Because he was a dead man and he started breathing again. That's why. That is, as, you're just like, whoa, to say that. And when Paul now says it, it's the Holy Spirit that goes, pow. It's the Holy Spirit that says, that's true. And you're just like, and when you say, yes, your grave splits open and the death smell comes oozing out and you're tied up in your rags and you still act like you used to and you sin and you're not good and you're still nasty and God is changing you and changing you and changing you and changing you and one day he will take you all the way to glory and it's rooted in the resurrection because when Jesus raised we raised so look at what he says I'm going to break this chapter into two parts. He says, very generically what he did, three things that he, th- that he sees that God is there in their lives, and then he breaks them into details. So in verse 3, first, verse 2, it says, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Father and Jesus Christ in the sight of our Father. Do you see? Work of faith. That's how you know that you're alive. That's how you know you've been resurrected. Your faith does things. Your faith works. What you believe changes you what you do. Your what you do is based on what you know is true. Okay? This is from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, ordained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, Quench the violence of the sword, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, wax valiant in fight, turn to flight the armies of aliens. This is people, simple people, who didn't know what they were doing. God did it. But their faith showed in what they did. They worked because they believed. And he said, that's how you can know you're alive. That's how you know you were resurrected. Okay, what else? Your labor of love. Not your labor of desire. There's a lot of people that will work very hard to get what they want. That's not a labor of love. That's a labor of lust. Labor of lust and labor of love is two different things. Labor of love is because God loves me, I love God. Because God loves me, I love you. Period. And that love is a joy. Do you understand? Love is the strongest emotion in the world. It's strong enough to do everything. What would keep a mother up all night except for a baby with a temperature? It will keep you up all night, really, because even though you're tired, you love them. It's strong enough. Your love will cause you to obey God. Your fear of God is not strong enough to make you obey God. Your love for God will be strong enough to make you love God. And it was a labor of love. That's how you know you're risen from the dead. And so in my mind, immediately, I'm like, 
work of faith, labor of love, hope. Is that me? You know what I mean? You can take your own pulse. Is that me? Am I alive? Have I trusted the Lord? Do I want him? Do you see it? And then as he gets next week, as we go into the very specific list, you're like, oh, I can look at that. That's me or not me. Is that me? And you look. Do you see? That is, God's fine with that. You test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You test yourself. Don't be deceived. You test yourself. And I promise when you're like, da-da, da-da. Oh, that feels so wonderful to know you're not dead, to know you're alive, and to know I'm still a sinner, but one day, one day, all that's going to be gone. I will not offend God. I will only please him all the time, even as he knows that I am right now. And you're just like, oh, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make it now. I'm tired of this place. So let's go back to, to Easter. The people who believed the resurrection themselves are resurrected. This is from John chapter 20. On the first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early when it was still dark under the sepulcher and seeth the stone away from the sepulcher. I want to propose to you that when Jesus rose from the dead and you believed, you rose from the dead. That's my, that's my premise. If you raised from the dead... What does that look like now? I want to tell you that I think it looks like Mary going to the tomb. Christians wake up early. Not really, or we'd all be in real bad trouble. But what I mean is, while it's still yet dark, before the full day is obvious to everyone, the Christians are already awake. A Christian is knowing that they've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and they're already awake. They're already awake. So when I say that this whole book is about resurrection, it is. Chapter 4 is on our resurrection. Okay? When it says, don't worry about the people who have already died in the Lord. There will be a day when the archangel will shout and there will be a trumpet call of God and the dead will be raised first. And we who are living will be caught up with Christ ever to be with the Lord. That is comfort to people who realize, is this a philosophy that you made me believe? Am I believing some kind of a credo? And Paul's like, no, you were raised from the dead. And not only are you now raised from the dead and are actually alive, one day your body will be raised from the dead, just like Christ. You will be raised like Christ is raised. And all of that happens. But right now, at the end of this book, in Thessalonians chapter 5, I just want to end with one picture. This is, he's basically saying, you are already awake. The day is going to surprise everybody. When the day of the Lord comes and the bright sun comes, people are going to be petrified. They're going to be calling on the mountains to fall on them, and you are not going to be surprised at all because you've been awake for hours. So this is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, when they shall say peace and safety and sudden destruction comes upon them as with a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness that, you should, that it should overtake you as a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, we don't sleep like others, but let us watch and be sober. 
For they that sleep, sleep at night, and they are that drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate, watch the three verb, of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The very things that he just said, I see this in you. I see your faith. I see your love, and I see your hope. And that's evidence that you're not a dead person. You are alive because you were resurrected because Christ was resurrected. Hallelujah. That's the truth. That's amazing. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord. We read this verse the other day in Bible study, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is my clincher. This was my end. This is the zinger. And this is from Proverbs chapter 4. The path of the righteous is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. A person who is alive and is walking towards the Lord, as the day dawns and gets brighter and brighter and brighter, it is only glory and hope that you're walking. It's not catastrophe. It's not screaming in pain. It is not trying to get away from something. It is, my goodness, what have you done for me in the Lord Jesus? I have no idea. Amen.